You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, you know, whenever I'm just at home sitting back, the thing that always comes to my mind is I'm wondering how you get your news. Just something I always think about. So I I did. I I cut the uh, the whole cord thing, like the the cable cord. And so it has been difficult, like breaking news. Like I don't have like my local affiliate. So I do find myself. We had some weather today and I was trying to like really figure out like how do I find out weather because I can't just turn to channel seven or whatever the channel seven is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I do a combination of things. I do. Oftentimes I do look on Twitter and sometimes when I see something that I find interesting, like for breaking news in general, I'm like, well, wait a second, that's one person who does not have a check by his name. And I have no idea who the heck that is. And so then I also go to check out other news sources too, um, because I get a little bit sketched out when I just see one person reporting on something. Right. But in terms of weather, I definitely do a bunch of different, you know, I have a bunch of different, like, I do check my, my local, because I remember who he was and I follow my, my local weather person, but then I, I go elsewhere too. How about, is that, is that normal? Like, does this seem I, like. I think it's, it's also, it's kind of weird. Isn't it, right? like, your, I don't, I don't ever explain to people, but when I think about it, it's like how strange of a media environment we live in now. Right. So th- the way I get a lot of my local news, since you were talking about that, is I follow, follow our local paper. And they tend to tweet out most of their stories. Mm -hmm. So I have a list of like 50-ish accounts that I actually like. I follow like thousands of accounts, but I have like a list of like 50. And so they're on my list of like 50 of tweets that I actually try to look at all of them every day. And so I get my local news by by adding my local newspaper's Twitter account to my list I created. It's difficult. Like I, I do, mm-hmm. like I, I don't have a, I don't get a daily newspaper. I didn't think we have, we do have like Boston obviously has a, has a, a daily newspaper, but not for my particular town. So yeah, the internet and following specific people is important. I'm very yeah. reliant on people pushing specific stories to me. You yeah. know what I mean? Like either, so I subscribed, I try to subscribe to good news outlets and sometimes I subscribe to newsletters about specific topics and so I get a bunch nope. of it, but gosh, it's such, it's so fragmented. It's just like the cable thing now, right? Like people piece together, like which streaming services they have. It's the same way. I feel like it's very piecemeal, but I really do work on finding people that I really trust so that every time I'm reading their articles, I don't have to go and like examine, you know, like their credibility. I'm like, oh, I've read this person. I'm familiar with their, them. They do good reporting, but it's a challenge. I know I don't watch the nightly news anymore. It's, I was with my in-laws and they had it on. And it was like utterly depressing. I, I don't know if I remembered that, but I was like, how I would, I almost like just had to like shut down for the day, watching story after story about terrible things. It just, oh my goodness, wasn't good. I don't know. I always got annoyed when I watched like the local morning news and they'd be talking about a news, like something fun and cute that happened in like a place that's really far away. It's like, I don't care about that. That has nothing <laughs> to do with Massachusetts, but cool. That's really cute, I guess. If you want a good book on the on thinking about news, like cable news and specifically, I was reading Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death was like, you'll never look at it the same because it talks about how many like pseudo events 
like the news kind of makes up, right? Like whether it's they press conferences. Yes, what happened? Yeah, or just some reporter going and standing somewhere and saying, this is a story, right? It's like, I guess, right? Like compared to everything else, is that an important story? So I, I really do think it's important. And of course, an important component of this for educators is figuring out how do we understand where students are getting their news and how do we teach to help them with that? Yeah. Maybe, maybe they help us with it. I don't know. I don't know which way this goes. That's a good question. I, I wish that we, we, you brought people today, correct? Yeah, we, we've got people who have more, you know, a little more Looking research done is, on this than yeah. us. Yeah. Than that conversation, whatever we, what we just did. So, well, yeah. yeah. Ha- having said that, we would like to welcome into the podcast, a great team who's going to help us think about like what the heck we can do with helping understand this media environment. And so we would like to welcome back to the podcast, Ellen Middow. And she brought some guests with us, Kristen Huey, Christina Smith, and George Franco. Welcome, everyone. Hi, it's great to be here. How are you? We're doing great. (laughs) So we'd love to know who everyone is. So could you all start each by just kind of telling us just a little bit about yourselves and your kind of background in in education? Yeah, so I'm Ellen Middaw. I am the PI for the Civic Media Literacy Project. I am an Associate Professor of Child and Adolescent Development at San Jose State University and the Lurie College of Education. And my research focuses on youth civic engagement and how young people engage with civic issues using the internet and social media. So this includes research with young people themselves to learn from them and then working with high school and college teachers to take these lessons to the classroom. So this project is really about how young people engage with news about civic issues through social media. And I will turn it over to George. Do you want to introduce yourself? Howdy there, everyone. Uh, My name is George Franco. And I recently, I'm a uh, research assistant with with Professor Mada. I attended San Jose State and just got my BA from there in child and adolescent development. My career goals are to like work as an LPCC, which is a licensed practitioner clinical counselor. And currently working with Professor Mada, I help, I help do a lot of uh, interviews and I'm beginning to work with uh, SPS now and doing a lot of data analysis through there. So it's been pretty great. And I'm going to pass it over to Kristen now. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kristen. And I also received my BA in child and adolescent development from San Jose State. Um, My career goal is to be a child psychologist. I'm currently working at Piedmont Unified School District as a health clerk, and I'll soon be working with autistic children in their homes as a BCPA licensed behavior analyst. Um, As a research assistant on Dr. Maidal's project, I conducted interviews while also analyzing and transcribing each interview. And I'll pass that over to Christina. Hello. Well, just like everybody else, I also just graduated with my bachelor's in child development, but also psychology. My research focuses on children and at-risk youth who have adverse childhood experiences. I am currently trying to gain more research experience in order to apply to a clinical psychology PhD program. And as a researcher assistant on this project, I conducted interviews and analyzed data. Well, it's great to have everyone here. And I think one of the cool things already that I'm curious about is I'd love to hear about the kind of formation of this project, but particularly how you were all able to work together, right? I think one thing that we would love to see more is see faculty be able to work with students on meaningful research projects. And sometimes it seems like it doesn't always come together, but you all made it happen. So how did this whole project come together? And we'd love to hear a little bit more about it. 
So the project is uh, Civic Media Literacy in a Network Society funded by the Spencer Foundation. And so this is a two-phase project. In phase one, we conducted uh, Think Aloud interviews with 40 adolescents and young adults. So 15 to 17 for the adolescents, 18 to 24 for emerging adulthood. And the interviews focused on what issues they cared about, what media they were following, guided prompts as they worked their way through social media and showed us how they would choose sources and recommend sources. And then phase two, which will be starting in a couple of months, we've just finished up phase one and going through the interviews is we'll be creating a survey with embedded tasks to see how do we influence whether people slow down and pay attention to media and what factors um, in a bigger sample so that we aren't just focused on the 40, but that we have a larger survey sample. So this has been an interesting experience. I got funding to start this project before COVID and had it set up in a very different way. And then the pandemic happened. And so I like working with our undergraduate researchers as much as possible, in part because they are mostly youth themselves, emerging adults. They remember what it was like to be in high school. And so they can really inform how I ask questions in the project. So I just mentioned some of the work I was doing in my class in a senior seminar class. And these three reached out and said they were interested in working with me in part because they're on social media, because they wanted to learn about research, or they wanted to work on their interviewing skills. Do you all want to say a little bit about what brought you to this project and what it's been like working together? Because you guys have really been working as a team. So for me, again, I was looking into graduate programs and I realized I didn't have any research experience I'm like okay well how do I kind of go about getting research experience because no one really talked to me about it and I just so happened to be in your class and you said hey if you're interested in research come talk to me and I came and talked to you and I just enjoyed it ever since and it's even helped me get on other research projects and fun fact we've never all met each other in person so a lot of it is just us meeting online and I feel as if Going through COVID, it kind of made me feel connected to my community a little bit more with all the interviews that we're doing because everyone was mostly local. And it kind of gave me a better sense of connecting, even though I wasn't physically connecting with my peers. Fun fact, I didn't know Dan in, in real life for like, what, two years? I think oh, we were I an mean, article together before I, we met. I would say Zooms are real life, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we hadn't met in person, right? You could have been eight feet tall and I wouldn't have known. That's he's not, he's not eight foot tall. I'm, not. I'm normal. Not I, I, what normal is. Yeah. What's normal, but no. And this, so this is really, it really is, is um, interesting to that. You all first took the initiative to kind of volunteer for a research project. I'm curious, was research what you expected it to be? If you, if you hadn't had experience prior to this? For me, I don't think so. I was a lot more work and a lot more trial and error and a lot of communicating with each other texting each other, hey, can we meet at this time? Because also we were full-time students. Some of us were also working. And just going through it and conducting the interviews and seeing like each step by step and even having some issues with the IRV board. We're coming back, talking to each other, brainstorming. And then, yeah, it was just a lot more work than I expected it to be. Yeah, I think, Christina, one thing that, that always stands out to me too is that we always see the end of research studies, so they look very clean. And if you've ever worked on research projects, it's they can be incredibly messy, right? Like working through the data, 
I, I, I've been working on a project this last summer where like I, I had to go add in like, I feel like how much stuff we looked at to our methods section, because I don't think the, the editors and reviewers like got how much time we'd spent in our lives. Like I wanted them to know how like exhausting it was. Cause it kind of didn't look like it was a lot of work. And I was like, this took us forever. So yeah, it's just even like transcribing interviews and like working through different coding structures and things like that. Cause if once something gets messed up, you can have to go back and do everything again. And so yeah, it's quite the process. So, so tell us about this research specifically. What was this study and what did y'all do? Yeah, so this study was focusing on kind of this broader question of uh, what, in, so all of my research is inspired by the question of kind of what inspires young people to engage in civic issues and what skills do they need to do so responsibly in an empowered way. This particular project was inspired by something I noted studying media literacy interventions in high school classrooms and noticing that the students had learned a lot about how to analyze credible sources, but weren't transferring that information out into their other tasks. And if we're going to have effective civic education. I need, we need to, it needs to reflect young people's lived experiences and kind of what they care about, what they're doing. So we're really started with trying to figure out, okay, what issues do they follow online? Where are they getting their information? And then what do they take into account when they're sharing it? So I know, Kristen, you've kind of taken the lead on looking through what are the issues they're following and what are they paying attention to? So do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so we interviewed both emerging adults, so college students, and also we interviewed high school students. And it was really different to see the different answers that they had. I know, I remember like emerging adults, a lot of it was uh, COVID situations, like just because COVID was a current event, still is a current event. And then also they brought up racism, sexism, discrimination, which also kind of uh, circled back to COVID. And then also homelessness, affordable housing, which also happened to be happening more during COVID. So I think emerging adults was more kind of current events, just with like society and just basically around the world what was happening and then with high school students they also brought up COVID but they also brought up other events or brought, brought up other issues that more is it kind of occurs more in like their kind of daily school life or their daily personal life some of them brought up bullying uh, mental health and also LGBTQ issues which I found very interesting because as I like I'm just remembering when I was a high schooler those were also issues that were going around in like my high school and my middle school and it wasn't really talked about we just didn't really have that space to talk about it so I think these high school students were able to talk about it with us and just kind of go over what was really going on from their perspective. Yeah and then um, Christina took the lead on kind of going through and seeing all right what types of sources are young people looking at so in the past when I've thought about this I've really thought about how to get them to analyze to do what Dan does follow you know credible sources analyze whether Fox News versus MSNBC has a slant but what Christina will share is we're seeing a lot of the sources they're following are not those, they are somewhat those traditional sources, but there's a much wider range out there. So after we went back and we're looking at the interviews that we conducted, we were seeing that a lot of their information that they were getting from were news aggregators such as Anti-Racism Daily and Change. 
These accounts post issues that were related to Black Lives Matter and encouraging others to vote. The interviews had also showed us that the users were relying on direct sources of, of information, such as Kamala Harris, Biden, AOC, and their local Congress people, as well as activists like Sean King. So yeah, that really struck me because I don't know that teachers are really taking these types of sources into the classroom. And so when they're trying to apply what they learn in the classroom, if they're encountering sources that are very different than what they've used in the classroom, it's hard to follow those cues to know how to apply their kind of credibility information. And then last thing that George focused on, which I've been really interested in, is what factors influence whether people engage with social media? So what leads them to slow down and pay attention to it? What leads them to share it? Who do they share it with? So as we were doing the interviews, it actually turned out that a lot of the participants would go like, would actually stop, read and look through the through some of the stuff. And some of the factors that we found was like one major factor was, was it funny? That was something that we would look at. And a lot of them would actually say, yes, they would share something if it, if one of the contributing factors was that it was funny and their reasoning, not necessarily because they wanted to draw attention to that, but more so like whether it was adolescents or adults, they all felt like, I just want to share this because my friends would enjoy it. It wasn't necessarily the movement or the concept of that post that really like got them to stop. It was just the idea. This is funny. So I wanted to share things that might take away from like whether they shared it. Factors that were doing that were like celebrity endorsements. That one was kind of split down the middle. Some people would stop and they would look at it and they would be like, I don't want to share this, even though that they were like supportive of that movement. But they felt that if a celebrity is endorsing it, it kind of takes away and it's just building their platform, not necessarily like Black Lives Matter or um, the LGBT community, they just felt like it would take away from that and just focus on like the famous actor or representative or anything, anybody like that. Others saw it as an opportunity to like boast or like get better. They saw it as an opportunity based off of like how many followers that they had to get more attention and draw more awareness because they acknowledge that these people have large platforms. Therefore, they're going to have a lot of attention seeing it. And that's what they want to do. They wanted to pass on that message. And so those were some of the contributing factors that we saw, like people would stop, look at, this is why I'm going to share it or I'm going to engage with it. That's what we kept looking at. Yeah. And I will say everyone we interviewed almost to a T valued the idea of sourcing credibility, but social and emotional factors played a huge role in whether to engage. And so learning to balance those things is an important factor. It's, it's interesting as you, talk about like the ways that people find sources and what they find valuable and how they thought through it. I'm just reflecting on my own media habits, right? And like, I'm like, oh, how, how am I doing? But a couple of things came to mind. I saw a great tweet the other day that just reminded us that, you know, young people are not the, sometimes the kind of like uh, passive, you know, take everything in and social media users that we often portray them as they have thoughts. And George, what you just said about you know, them having mixed feelings about influencers, right? Like about how influencers are part of a message and whether they should pass that on um, is something I think that's really important for teachers, right? That we shouldn't assume that all students or young people are going to have just a positive view of influencers or think that they should share their work, but that they would sometimes they're going to already come in with critical perspectives about 
it's not about your platform. It's about something larger. And so I found that really interesting. Is, is that, the, I mean, did you see that throughout your data that there tended to be thoughtfulness about how to, to kind of navigate these complex environments? Yes, we did see that quite often. A lot of them would, whenever we brought that question up, they would either, yes, I do want to share this because of that factor. They know it or they don't. None of them were really like, I don't know. It's kind of a toss up. They instantly just like recognize that as like, this could be a source and this could be a factor on why I'm going to stop, share this or not share it. It was definitely something to acknowledge or notice. Yeah, we saw a lot of thoughtfulness about kind of how to pay attention to things, how it's going to impact people when you share it. And there was an interesting thing that emerged, Christina, I think you brought this up to speak to of this idea of managing your accounts and your public profile. Do you want to speak to that, Christina? Yeah, so we kind of saw a difference between the adolescents versus the older young group, the ones who are around my age. And it seems as if the adolescents were more willing to repost their risky opinion or how their perspective on different opinions on their feed versus the ones who were the young adults, a lot of them didn't feel comfortable posting their political views or certain opinions about different things because they felt as if their family or their peers were gonna look down on them. And then a lot of the older crowd as well would have something called a Finsta and they would have an account just to post their political views and that's where most of the people that they follow, like the aggregators and change, it was going to be on that Finsta. So yeah, that reputation management. I want to know if Michael has a Finsta. What? Yeah, no, I need to, what is Finsta? So I think fake, fake Insta, right? So fake Instagram. Yeah. So basically it's like fake Instagram and on there, it's mostly people, you follow just people who you are close to. That's who it's aimed towards. So it's more people you have a closer connection to. And so I'm assuming when it comes to that, they feel more comfortable posting their views because they're more than likely going to be surrounding themselves around people who have the same points of view as they do. So it's more of a walled garden with people who you uh, feel comfortable with. And I would assume too, these, the Finstas are usually, and accounts like that are usually going to be ones that are not using your full name or something that makes you easily identifiable. So there's a pseudo anonymity or just probably anonymity that exists with using these types of, of, of profiles. So that's, that's really interesting. So Michael, you didn't answer the question. Do you have a Finsta? I know. Well, hold on. I need to go back to this. So can you Finsta anything? Can I have a Finsta Twitter or is Finsta its own place? Yeah, no, we had a just a state of mind. Go ahead, Christina. We did have a Twitter user. I was going to say it could be anything. So Finsta is just for Instagram. I don't really know what the other names are, but it it started way back just to post pictures for like your friends and things like that. And when we were conducting the interviews, I was seeing accounts that people had a Finsta, but it was for their political views or just to post different things that they felt comfortable around and not kind of have their name out there so they wouldn't be judged by others who aren't having the same opinion as they are. And so it's interesting because this plays into what we know about the way we interact on social media, that it is very emotive, right? Social media is very emotional and that we, when we get up, fired up about political issues, we want to retweet things we agree with, but we don't always know right away whether those are great sources. So people tend to be hesitant. So a Finsta, for example, allows you to do that 
um, which now the question whether that's good for all of us, right, <laughs> to have those outlets. Now it depends how walled is your garden, I guess is a good is a good question, right? Like if you are just with your friends, I mean, I am sending those text messages often to my friends about political frustrations and things like that. But I guess the question is then when that, you know, see, goes seeps off into a larger environment, um, where more and more people see that news, that's those are the questions I kind of w- wonder about, right? So I guess that's the challenge of media education today. Yeah, um, I did want to say, I, I think the Finsta is one of those great examples of youth adaptation, because my understanding is it emerged more around trying to establish privacy around like what parents are following and things like that, and then has become a practice that um, as you're kind of managing, all right, who's in your conversation, how is it impacting your reputation, managing that audience. Like you said, Dan, it can be a challenging thing or it can be a positive thing, but talking through kind of, all right, who do you want to see your media and why and how are you doing it is, I think, a really worthwhile conversation. And that seems like a good jumping off point for adolescents, right? It's talking about privacy with parents, right? Because they, it's from, from the research I've read, they tend to care about the privacy from parents far more than privacy, like from corporations that I'm concerned about. I'm like very concerned about what Google has, what information they have about me. And most kids, it starts with parents, which it makes a lot of sense, right? Because, you know, I'm very autonomous and 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 have the ability to kind of make my own decisions, whereas they're still very much limited. I think we should, uh, to quote Will Smith, take it from Will Smith, parents just don't understand. <laughs> I know, take it from me, parents just... Don't un- there was a um, Will Smith. Will Smith. He was the. Fr- you have to yeah explain this to everyone. <laughs> Will Smith is a is an actor. He has a, now he has kids, but he used to be a kid, <laughs> and he wrote this song called "Parents Don't Under Parents Just Don't Under." It was amazing. This would um, be great content for your Finsta. I feel like. I apologize. He he was he's a tremendous he was a tremendous actor like. Did you see? Uh, I'm sorry. We're just gonna stop. We could uh, go down a Will Smith rabbit hole. His his career evolution has been something. I'm just but, genuinely curious if the young people in this group <laughs> no. know that Will Smith had been a rapper. At was one a rapper. Point. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That's how he started when we were when I was your age or younger, even I guess. <laughs> and then he broke into the movie scene and like mm-hmm. like Independence Day, phenomenal. I mean, he's obviously done some you know uh, not so great ones. But Independence Day, Men in Black. He also the the Annie movie. He it was supposed <laughs> to be him and his daughter, but it, it took too long to get the green light. But that was kind of fun. I apologize, George. You're the best. I appreciate this. <laughs> so l- let me ask you all this question: What? How? So looking at the study, talking to adolescents and emerging adults, how would you? How do you feel like where people are at? And then the big question for educators listening to this podcast is: What do we do? Like, how can we be better educators to, which a lot of us are figuring this out as you can, as you can hear us talk about it. Like, you know, I feel like all my habits are stuff I'm working on. So, so where, what do you, what would be your overall assessment of where people are at and and what educators can do? Yeah, I'm going to let Christina take this one first. We all kind of discussed this and I was really interested in their feedback based on kind of their experience being in high school, what they experienced, and then what we're learning from this. So, because they've been there much more recently than I have. Yeah. So for me, I was saying that something that would be super important is 
start implementing ways on how to tell if the source is credible. Because I remember way back when, when I was in high school, they're like, okay, well, most of the news is going to come from newspapers or your news sources that are on TV. And I feel like when I was in school, we often got told, don't believe everything that you see online. And now I'm like, okay, well, since that's where everyone is getting their information from, even like Dan had said, he was on his Twitter. So why don't we show the students how to tell if the information is credible and then also bring up your own tweet screenshots it screenshot it or you can even make um, specific accounts for your classroom and have your students make accounts and respond to them retweet them and make it more hands-on since that's what we're doing today oh in a real instagram is called a rinsta i just looked at an article <laughs> Yeah, and George, I think you had kind of similar, but a, a di slightly different spin on kind of how to bring in social media into the classroom and um, source checking and things like that. Yeah, uh, going off of like what Christina said, I remember learning in high school, like how, so like there was the book Unspun, and we learned how to like look more into the ads and stuff like that and but it wasn't it was like read the fine line and we can't really do that in social media posting because most of the time it's just the main topic and then whoever posted it and i feel like i feel like what educators we should start incorporating maybe is like doing like further research into who's posting it and if that source is actually credible or if it's just like somebody's random opinion where there's no real source on it, there's nothing actually behind it. It's just what they believed in because I was taught how to like find the data, find where this person is, how credible is this person who wrote that article? Because if they weren't, then obviously you wouldn't want to use them as a source. And that can obviously be really challenging when it comes to social media, because a lot of people will post their opinion, but that doesn't make them an expert on that topic. Uh, and I feel like that's a great maybe like a way we can start working into is like doing better research on like posters and seeing if they're actually a credible person. But Michael. Do you all look at memes? I feel like memes are being used uh, quite excessively and it's really hard to fact like, yeah. What would you talk about with, with memes? Yes, we had, we showed them different media prompts and there was a whole section on memes and asking if they would share it. And so George, do you want to, since that was your section, what did you notice as he showed memes? Would people share them? Did they question the source or were they focused more on whether it was funny or not? So memes actually was like one of the more common ones, kind of like with funny, they would be like, yeah, I'd love to share this, but, uh, they only, they didn't really care for like any history or like what's going on about the post. They only shared it because like they thought it was funny or if it related to their friends, a lot of them would be like, oh, my friend would love this Mr. Crab one where like Mr. Krabs is struggling at the gym after COVID. And that was like a reference that like, you know, a lot of us are going to go back to the gym, but none of us are going to be like as strong as we were going back when we started. And so a lot of them were like, oh, I'd love to share this with my friend or something like that. But none of them were like taking away the message of COVID and how, you know, it's kept us home and stuff like that. They just only wanted to share it because it was funny. So memes, not memes didn't really get any like source checking. It was just immediate that social emotional response. Like, am I going to get a laugh out of this or is no one going to find this funny at all? So. Yeah. I think that really highlights something I've been trying to grapple with for quite some time, which is when you don't have the informational cues, 
you don't necessarily source check. Like if the source isn't there, then you aren't cued to check the source. There's been a fair amount of research that shows without those cues, people, when they have the strategies, don't use them. And when you're on social media, you've got this personal stuff, the humorous stuff, the political stuff, all at the same time, and learning to kind of switch on and off and think about how to share is a big task currently. It reminds me of some of the reports that came out about the um, you know, social media manipulation during the 2016 election, where you had the Internet Research Agency, which was out of Russia, that would often use memes and, and satire and comedy as a way to get messages out, right? And they would do so by even like, even when they started to get accused, more attention got brought back to them. They would make memes that say, oh, Russia is part of everything. Russia's under your bed, right? And so they made it a joke when people were blaming them as a way to kind of make it a less serious issue that you shouldn't really care about. And of course, there's no fact checking this, there's no sourcing or anything. And so I guess part of the thing is taking all the media we see a bit seriously, at least in a classroom environment, right? And and so we can develop that ability to think about things like memes. One thing though, that was interesting was with the memes, they often said I would share it to my group text or to my friends, not so much recirculating it broadly. So it's going through those more local friendship networks. Whereas my impression with adults is it's more of just, you know, share it out. And so that was kind of interesting to see like, well, I wouldn't just repost it. I would share it to my friends so we can laugh about it together. No, a a crab uh, going to the gym does seem like a hoot. I do. And I think the thing I'm hearing here and, and Dr. Middow, your, your previous work really is, it was the first time that, that helped me with this in your chapter in the unpacking fake news book that Wayne Jernell edited was really helpful in taking seriously and bringing into the classroom, the stuff that students are seeing and that bubbles up for them, right? Starting there as your starting point, instead of sometimes these big media literacy lessons we have planned that are going to solve the problem, which you know, like sometimes kind of miss some of the things that are most important to to young people. So I think this study seems to be doing that. So that's really cool that you've continued this work and that you've got such great partners here, right, to figure out some of these questions and 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 what we can do a little bit more. What what other advice do you all have for us? For yeah, I wanted to actually on that point bring Kristen in because one of the things I was asking about is kind of how one of the things that motivates young people to really think about the media they're consuming? Is it that it be something they're passionate about, they care about? And so I felt like Kristen had some nice insight on what it means to center youth in the classroom and take their ser- their issues seriously. So uh, I've talked about this before, but I think just allowing the space like in classrooms or just in school settings or other settings where youth are together, um, just having that space to really talk about these issues because for me, like I, my family's very kind of kept to themselves. So like a lot of these issues, we just kind of internalize them. We don't really talk about them. So just for myself and I can speak for like my friends as well, having the same situation of just being, or having to internalize it rather than talk about it out loud or talk about it with like a family member or a close friend. It was kind of tough because just not having that space or being able to talk about it comfortably with even your parent or even with like someone in your family, it kind of was weird to see like these events happening like in the news and then kind of just emotionally react to it, but not talk about it verbally. I noticed like a lot of the youth that uh, I spoke to or interviewed, they were very vocal and they were very detailed in terms of what the problems that they had. So it felt like to me, like maybe they had that same experience where they couldn't 
talk about this with their families. Um, I didn't specifically ask them, oh, have you talked about this with their family? But just kind of telling how they were very detailed, it seemed like they had a lot to say and it felt like a weight was being lifted off their shoulders to finally get it out and to have a space to talk about it. So I think in general, overall, like classrooms or just social settings should have an opportunity just for students, especially because I think another thing too, these interviewees were very surprised that they aren't the only ones doing this project. And that when we, when we mentioned that everyone else or like a bunch of other people had like the same issues or brought up these same issues that it would, that it was very surprising to them. I think just having everyone have those same issues and just having like a community of people experience that. So I think for youth, just having that space is comforting for them and it brings them, I want to say it just kind of brings them like a more comfort to talk about it and just having like someone to listen to or someone to converse with. I think that helps them kind of cope with a lot of these issues because a lot of these issues that they brought up were very unfortunate and like it was very hard for them to kind of, I wouldn't want to say like it was hard for them to talk about, but just more hard for them to kind of remember because I think a lot of these issues, like I said, they're very unfortunate and not the greatest things to remember. I think Kristen touches on something I often say about civic education and the process of civic engagement, which is discovering your personal experience has structural political implications. So a lot of things we think we're just facing are actually happening for structural reasons. And that's where civic engagement, you can start to say, how do we change the culture? How do we change the system? So I think uh, Kristen brought to my attention. We were doing this, you know, during COVID, Black Lives Matter, the election. And in the in the San Jose area, there was a lot of in San, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, there was a lot of anti Asian violence happening. And that had its roots in a lot of how the government was talking about this issue. And so being able to discover they're not the only ones worried about or grappling with something. And so to me, the implications for civic education is kind of how do you bring these current issues in while you're talking about the structure and function of government? And while you're talking about history, how do you situate, we're learning this history so we understand what's happening now and think about what to do about it. Ellen, George, Kristen, Christina, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having us. It was great. Thank you. It was really interesting to do this. Thanks for having us. And so we really, really did enjoy having you all today. And we certainly hope to continue this discussion online on our Finstas uh, with our close friends. And then maybe even, you know, on our Rinstas with our, lar- with our larger group of friends. Yeah. Now at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat and we get it, we're here. Hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, Uh, Subscribe to Visions of Education podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and literally anywhere you want us to be. I really am never on Facebook. I should feel like I should just say that, but I am getting it. We don't have to put that in the the notes in the podcast. Okay, yeah. Well, here here's something we should put in the episode though. If you write us a five star review, we'll read it on the air, and it really helps people find this podcast. So it's how algorithms work. So please do it. And we would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter is my real Twitter account where I yell lots of things out into the world at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Peak. 
Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.